Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. Hello! We're back for another episode of the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts, and today we're going to be talking about the largest black hole merger that has been observed to date. With me today is Nick. Hello, Nick. Hi, Connor. How are you? I'm good. <clears throat> so for these black holes, I've sort of forced myself not to look up <laughs> anything about them. <laughs> That's a good because, thing. Because, yep, you, you are our expert today, and uh, you're going to tell us all about this giant <laughs> black hole merger. For sure. Yeah, this will be a fun um, topic to talk about. Black holes are generally famous, at least I realize, when talking to people. Black holes just are the coolest things out there. Um, Everybody loves a good black hole story, and this exactly. is certainly a big black hole story. Exactly. It's the biggest we've ever come across. So to kick us off, I think we should cover some basics. Just mm. um, essentially, what is a black hole? Before we even get into the mergers or the biggest one, right, what, what right. is this thing? Yeah, in like a few words or in a gist, we can say that a black hole is a dead star. That's the start of it. And I think that's intriguing, intriguing enough. So we have billions of stars in our galaxy and each star essentially has a lifetime just like human beings. And depending on how big the star is, they end up becoming something different. So something like our sun, which is considered just a mediocre star, a dwarf star, in fact, um, once it's done through its lifetime, will unfortunately not become a black hole. It will become what is called a planetary nebula. Did it you will say essentially... unfortunately not become a black hole? <laughs> <laughs> I love black holes. So <laughs> I would like okay, it to become if... a black hole. If that's your passion, I would rather <laughs> our sun did not become a black hole. I mean, if sun was to become a black hole, nothing really dangerous would happen, right? It would just take place of the sun and the earth would continue to orbit it. Nothing really bad should happen, I think. <laughs> well, we would lose all of the light from the sun, which is... That is the big problem. Yes, it's true. We might freeze to death, but it'll still be cool while we're freezing to orbit a black hole we'd be like in in the movie interstellar right that that planet i forget which was roaming around gargantua the one that has time dilation yeah yeah that would be pretty cool anyways getting back to the topic <laughs> um right, yeah so sun would not necessarily become a black hole it would just like shed its outer layers and become what we call a planetary nebula but you turn up the mass of stars and make it maybe four times, five times bigger than, more massive rather than our sun is. And you start to get some interesting actions happening in, in the universe. Your star now suddenly goes supernovae. And so 
I know I'm going on a tangent, but this will come back to what a black hole is in a minute. So a star essentially is a battle, a war. The star, the material in the star is just so much. I mean, within our solar system, you look at it, close to 99% of the mass of the whole solar system is within the sun. And so this much mass has to create gravity. And so all of this mass essentially just wants to fall on itself. So all of the mass in the sun, let's take that for an example, wants to, wants to go straight down to the center because there's just so much gravitational energy there. But what prevents it from going into falling onto itself is essentially what we call radiation pressure or, or the heat that the sun is generating by fusing hydrogen atoms. And so a star throughout its life is just a war between the gravity, which is pushing downwards and the heat created by the sun going upwards. Now, this can essentially go on for a really long time in a star as small as our sun, about 10 billion years. But for something more massive, the more massive you are, the more sort of heat you need to push against the gravity because the bigger the gravity. And so for more massive stars, this can only go on for smaller amounts of time. And at one point of time, when you make, when you fuse iron, so when you're heating things up, you're making new elements within the core of a star. And when you fuse iron, you can no longer provide heat to fight against the gravity. And that's when the action begins. Once you cannot provide heat to fight against gravity, gravity wins and everything just essentially collapses on itself and goes bang, which is what we call a supernova. Now, if the sun or if the star essentially is about four times the mass of um, <clears throat> our own sun, you get the, everything is compressed so much that everything starts to change. The particles essentially start to change its their nature and, and only are left with neutrons. And what we get is a neutron star. But what's to stop us from turning the mass even more maybe? So we turn up the mass even more, make the star 10 times the mass of, of the sun. Now we're talking about black holes. So one, when gravity actually wins in this contest of gravity versus heat, you compress so much mass to one point that you get a black hole. Now, that is where the cool things happen in the universe, essentially. <laughs> yeah, and so now this is so much mass compressed into one point that the gravitational energy is, is very strong. So as people say, not even light can escape it. So if you were to throw on a light particle towards this black hole or towards this dead star, let's call it, it will get sucked in. Now, what happens to it once it gets sucked in? Is, is a good question, and maybe we'll not go into that realm. But if you've watched Interstellar, apparently you end up right behind Matthew McConaughey's bookshelf. But that's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, there's there's certainly an era of mystery around what happens inside yeah. the event horizon. Yeah. All right, so so now that we know how you get a black hole, what what do these black holes sort of look like? What types of black holes are there? Right. Yeah. So what I just talked about, and you have any star bigger than like 10 times, eight to 10 times the mass of the sun can become a black hole. Um, but you can have even more massive stars. In, in reality, you can have stars that are about 100 times the mass of our sun. And that will, result, that will definitely result in a supernova and a black hole. 
Uh, and but these black holes are now once again we're we're going to be focusing on these kinds of black holes. These are called stellar black holes, but they're pretty small black holes when it comes to sort of the family of black holes. They're like the baby black holes. They can't really baby do black much. holes that are as heavy as as what? As about hundred times the mass of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's that. a baby black hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you can keep going up. You can um, you can go up between about 100 to 1,000 times the mass of the sun. And you're now looking at intermediate mass black holes. Um, this is where, this is a true uh, region of mystery in astrophysics because maybe I'm spoiling it, but we have never seen an intermediate mass black hole yet. Um, but that's not it. You can keep turning on the mass and you can go up to a billion times the mass of our sun. The biggest leaders of the family here, the supermassive black holes as we call them. Um, and they generally are one or two within a galaxy living right at the center. Um, so every galaxy now we know, in fact, the Nobel Prize that was just announced uh, for this year, for 2020, last week, was it? Yeah, last week was for exactly this particular discovery where they discovered a supermassive black hole about a million times the mass of our sun at the center of the Milky Way. So these are the three different kinds of black holes that can exist there. Stellar black holes, which are tiny. Um, you have intermediate mass black holes, which have been theorized, but they don't necessarily, um, they haven't been discovered yet. Until or, now. Until now. Or supermassive black holes. So you're saying we know of we know of lots of stellar mass black holes around yeah. the mass of our sun. We know of lots of giant black holes, supermassive black holes <laughs> that are in the center of just about every galaxy. Yeah. But this middle range is where the mystery is. Yeah, I mean, so one of the biggest questions right now is because we've never seen intermediate mass or until now we've never seen an intermediate mass black hole that had been only theorized how do black holes that are stellar black holes, which are about 10 to 20 times the mass of the sun, reach all the way up to a billion times the mass of the sun living at the center of our galaxy. And yeah, so that's that's sort of the immediate question. If you've got a black hole as big as a million or a billion times the mass of our sun, yeah. how, how did it get there? Did it yeah, just form at that size or what happened? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so this is all theory at this point. There, there is no confirmation of these theories, but black holes grow in two ways. Um, the first way is, as I pointed out, the extreme gravity of the black hole allows for it to keep sucking matter in. Um, so whenever a black hole is near, let's say a gas cloud or a star, it'll suck it up, it'll eat it up and get fat. So that's <laughs> one way. <laughs> That's one way black holes get bigger um, through what we call accretion of matter. Um, but there's another way, which is sort of the focus of this podcast. Black holes can themselves collide and get bigger, essentially. So these are two ways we know of black holes getting bigger. However, like you would have to have a lot of black holes about 10 to 20 times the mass of the sun to reach a billion times the mass of the sun. So now, so about the uh, black holes yeah. eating material, yeah. I've heard that I've heard black holes called messy eaters. Can you tell mm -hmm. me? Can you tell me what's meant by messy eating for black <clears throat> holes? Yeah. So 
just think of a baby and when they eat. And so this analogy, I think, works perfectly. So if you have a kid at home, um, especially young ones, and you put food in them, a very small amount of that food really goes into their mouth. And a lot of it goes <laughs> around, right? That, that, or when I was a kid, essentially, that was the case. I, I, my dad used to put tissue paper around like a meter radius around me because he knew when I start eating, most of the food is going to end up on that tissue paper. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what black holes are, essentially. They're very inefficient in sucking that matter up. Most of the things that a black most of the things that come near a black hole essentially get turned back around into energy and sent out they don't necessarily so i think right now the theory is they eat maybe one percent of what is thrown at them so they're really inefficient at growing in mass through that way and so that's why we call them messy eaters most of the stuff is just thrown back as energy so are they thrown back because they slingshot around the black hole or is it that like it heats up and gets sort of launched away? It's the second it gets... one. It's, 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 it heats up and then you can imagine, uh, this is maybe a separate topic, but the magnetic fields around the black hole are, are pretty strong as well. So as a result of that, you have things that essentially come close to a black hole get converted into heat or energy and then because of the magnetic field and the black hole itself spinning get shot out as jets and these are some of the famous pictures that we have seen when it comes to looking at black hole pictures right there's a black hole sitting in jets in polar directions essentially flying off and well now that you've mentioned pictures i've i've got to ask uh in general how do we how do we detect these black holes Right, that's a good question. Um, maybe before we get to that, we should first answer the question that came before this uh, tangent that we went down on the messy eater. Um, the question is, how do you get billion times the mass of the sun black holes, supermassive black holes? Um, so the theory over here is that initially in the early parts of the universe, essentially when the universe itself was a baby, stars were much bigger. Um, Stars, this is what we call population three type or the first generations of stars were close to 1,000 to 10,000 times the mass of the sun. And wow. when these stars would end their lifetimes, now granted these stars have not been observed yet, so this is just a theory, but this is what we think is the case. When these stars went supernova um, and became black holes, they became giant black holes or what is called the intermediate mass black holes. And then, then these stars emerging together is what we think would have caused these supermassive black holes to I exist. see. But yeah. even if they are 100 times the mass of our sun, you'd still need a fair number of them merging in order to get up to a million oh, yeah. times. Yeah, but like there, there's a lot of material in the universe. Um, so it, currently... It's a big universe, all right. Exactly. Yeah, so currently that's the theory that we are going with. <laughs> incredible that there's still a mystery about something so like fundamental to that's exactly how, how these how these systems work yeah that's true yeah all right but maybe that's that i think is the great segue into detecting black holes i think one of the reasons is one of the reasons why there's still a mystery here is is because we can't see them 
black holes by definition don't emit light of their own or very rarely emit light light of their own so detecting them is is much harder so now there are a couple ways to detect black holes um we talked about the messy eating stuff so if you catch a black hole just spilling stuff around or while it's eating you can detect it because then the energies created are are so high that x-rays are emitted and so you can essentially send up a telescope up in space and look for these the x-rays and voila you found yourself a black hole um another but way that's to only detect- when it's eating right yes that's only when it's eating and it seems to be a very very um rare sort of episodic period in the life of a black hole i think at this point of time maybe we only know about a 40 to 50 stellar black holes most of them close to 90% of them have been detected due to um then eating so through x-ray observations but our calculations show that within our galaxy there can be close to a billion stellar mass black holes so my goodness should we be worried <laughs> <laughs> no not at all i think most of them are pretty far away from us therefore the gravitational um experience from those black holes is really negligible but this is almost to say that this is just the t- tip of the iceberg we we don't see most of the black holes out there yeah that's a little bit concerning but all right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so then a second way to detect black holes when they're not and this is still stellar black holes when they're not actually eating is to do something called gravitational lensing um so now over here you hope that the black hole has actually passes in front of a bright object and light gets contorted and you observe that contorted light to find these dark objects now there's a really good experiment that you can do you guys can do at home to sort of imagine what lensing gravitational lensing would be like and so you just take a newspaper or any paper with lines on them and take your wine take a wine glass and the base of the wine glass if you put it on that newspaper and move it around you'll see that the text or the lines on this paper get bent around the center around the stem of the wine glass and that's exactly what we observe in space with light so if the light gets bent around the black hole even though it's it's a black hole when yeah. it passes in front of a star does the star get brighter or darker yeah and so yes they do get brighter actually even like about 10 times brighter when they pass in front black when stars black holes when they pass in front of stars so that's another way to get them however once again you have to be lucky there again to wait for the black hole to pass in front of stars even though there's a lot of stars in the universe or in our galaxy even it's it's still a very rare phenomena so uh, all of this to say is that we desperately need a way to detect these black holes um because there are a lot of them our calculations show there are a lot of them now maybe moving on to the third and really the basic or sorry really the the foundation of this podcast is catching black holes when they emerge when they collide together and that happens through um the technique of what is called gravitational waves um so back in 1915 when einstein was at its on its heyday and doing the best work that physics has essentially ever seen he predicted that 
he predicted that um, when black holes collide, just like light, they would emit energy. But instead of um, us seeing that, we would feel that through the through the force of gravity. Um, so essentially, when a gravitational wave passes through um, an object, it gets squished and squashed. Um, we'll we'll go into we'll go deeper into um, gravitational waves later. But when black holes collide, this is one of the premier ways gravitational waves in the universe are are emitted. And if we can detect them, it's very hard to detect them. If we can detect them, we can see colliding black holes. And so that is what this discovery is about. Okay, well, I think that's actually a good place to stop for now. So let's go to our first break. Hello, I hope you're having fun learning about the science of black holes. For this break, let's play a game. I'm going to ask three questions. One has been answered already, and two will be answered soon. Make sure to listen closely, and I'll give you the answers during the next break. Ready? Let's begin. Question one. Can you name the three types of black holes? Question two. How long ago did the black hole merger happen? Question three. What does the LIGO, L-I-G-O, acronym stand for? I'll repeat the questions one more time. Question one. Can you name the three types of black holes? Question two. How long ago did the black hole merger happen? Question three. What does the LIGO, L-I-G-O, acronym stand for? Okay. So make sure to look out for these in the next segment, and I'll be back soon to give you the answers. Without further ado, let's return to the main event. And we're back. So now that we've learned a little bit about the basics of black holes, what they are, how they form, how we detect them, at least the basics of how we detect them, we should probably get into some of the more specifics about the topic of today, um, the detection of this intermediate mass black hole, which we now know is very special, using gravitational waves. So maybe you could give us some some more specifics information about uh, this this individual detection and not just detection in general. Right. Yeah. So back in um, September 2020, which is almost a month ago. Um, now, LIGO detected, so LIGO is the, the facility that sort of looks at um, um, detecting these gravitational waves from black hole collisions. And so back in September 2020, LIGO detected a bang. So generally, maybe to go back, um, and we'll try and put this clip in, in the podcast itself, um, is when LIGO detects black holes, um, it hears something of a chirp, which is whoop. It's 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 quite a humorous sound to say the least, but this is what you hear when black holes collide. Sorry, sorry. Could you could you say that again? <laughs> Did you not get that? It's whoop. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think I got it. <laughs> yeah, and so generally, when LIGO LIGO seen about a few dozen of black hole mergers now. And generally, that's the sound that comes through. But this time, there was something special. This time, it was more of a bang. 
I'm not going to make that sound now, but it was it was different. And so once they actually analyzed the signal that they got, they realized that they had observed a black hole collision that resulted in one black hole close to around 142 times the mass of the sun. Um, so this is exactly what we were talking about before. This is an intermediate mass black hole. This is not a part of the baby black holes. And this is neither a part of those supermassive black holes. So this is the first time we've ever seen on what we think is an intermediate mass black hole coming due to gravitational wave observations. So at 142 solar masses, that is well within the realm of intermediate black yeah. mass black hole. You said Definitely. anything over 100. Yeah. This is 142. Yeah. All right. So now, so what created this black hole is is the biggest mystery. It's not maybe what LIGO saw because LIGO is essentially just a telescope that is always, or just an observatory that is always on, and it always keeps looking for these chirps or these bangs now. And so the calculations essentially show that this 142 solar mass black hole was made by two black holes which collided. And these black holes were close to the size, were on the massive end as well of these stellar black holes, um, 85 and 66 solar masses. So these are also beasts of black holes, once again. So yeah, um, these, these black holes essentially we think could also have come from black hole collisions in itself. So this 142 solar mass black hole could have formed from four small black holes that individually collided to make two black holes, which are now 66 and 85 solar masses. And now then the, those collided. Those, those who are very good at mental math at home <laughs> might have recognized that 85 and 66 does not yeah. add up to 142. Yeah, it adds up uh, to 151. So, so what happened there? Um, yes, so this, this difference that you see between 142 and 151, which is the sum of 65 and 85, is nine solar masses, which is what was seen as the gravitational wave. So this nine solar masses is emitted in energy into the environment or into the universe but not in the form of light as we are used to seeing, but in the form of gravitational waves. And these gravitational waves in September were observed by these two facilities, LIGO in US and Virgo in Italy, um, and oh. we detected 142 solar mass black hole. Okay, so now that we've got sort of a, a teaser for what's so exciting about this, yeah. a, few, a few things have come up. There is there's LIGO and gravitational waves that perhaps we should yeah, uh, absolutely. explain in a little more detail. Yeah. So maybe we'll start with gravitational waves themselves. Yeah. So what are these gravitational waves? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. As as I was saying earlier, and Connor, you can chime in here as well, because we both study uh, physics. But um, back in Einstein, when he was writing his theory of general relativity um, and studying gravitation, he realized that just like light is something we consider as a wave, we think um, gravity also propagates as a wave. Um, yeah. So from what I understand, Einstein actually went 
back and forth on this a few times yeah. in his career yeah. because the math behind it is so mind bending. <laughs> um, trying to understand yeah. what it means for the fabric of the universe to oscillate or to, or to wave um, yeah. is is just something that's conceptually very hard to deal with. But right. what I what I like to think of when I think about gravitational waves is uh, the main the main thing that Einstein established is that nothing can move faster than the speed of light. No mm. information can move faster than the speed of light. Mm. So if you change a gravitational field, if you say move your black hole or a star or anything with mass, if you just move it over to the side, mm. then um, everything in the universe doesn't instantly recognize that that thing has moved over. Right. So some yeah. things experience gravity the way it was before the motion, and mm -hmm. some things experience gravity the way it was after you moved that black hole or star over to the side a little bit. Yeah. And then traveling at the speed of light, there's sort of a boundary between those two understandings of where the gravity is coming from. Mm -hmm. And that that is a wave, essentially. It's more, it's a pulse, technically. Um, yeah. But that, that is a wave moving through space at the speed of light that is a change in gravity. Now, yeah. moving a black hole or a star is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> so yeah. in order to make it happen, you generally need another star or a black hole. Or a black hole, yeah. And that's why we see these black holes spinning in towards each other yeah. with LIGO. So there, there are two black holes moving each other side to side, but that information can only travel to us at the speed of light. So we're getting we're getting a delayed understanding of where that black right. hole is as we see yeah. it move around. Yeah, yeah. So this discovery of this 142 solar mass black hole actually happened seven billion years ago, and we're only getting the information now. Seven billion years ago. That's yeah. my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's so far away. Yeah, the universe. The the age of the universe is about 13 billion years. So. The universe was essentially in its teenagers when when this 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 black hole collision would have happened, and we're seeing it only now. So yeah, that's yeah. and that's actually that's that's part of what I said earlier about the information only traveling at the speed of light. Yeah, so exactly. it, it must have happened seven billion light years away. Yeah, if modulo the expansion of the universe. Yeah, and I probably shouldn't it's... say modulo, but. Accounting for the expansion of the universe. Exactly, yeah. But that's a different thing in itself. And we can't go down that rabbit trail, but it no, can be a, a, a that's podcast. That's a whole podcast itself. on itself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so we've, um, we've talked a little bit about what these gravitational waves are and why colliding black holes are right. the case where we see the gravitational waves. So right. what is LIGO and how is it built? to be sensitive enough to detect these tiny, tiny fluctuations in space-time. Right. Um, yeah, so LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Um, and once again, I've thrown a lot at you here. So we're gonna go through what a laser interferometer means. We've talked about what a gravitational wave is, but now that you have created a gravitational wave, you need a way to see it just like once light is created, we have telescopes to see that light from space. We need an instrument to see this uh, gravitational wave. So these two um, 
So LIGO is two institutions, one based in Hanford and the other one in Washington State. Um, these are two big laser interferometers. So let's talk about laser interferometers. I think we can say light is a wave. Um, so now you can imagine um, when we talk about interferometer, we're talking about two waves colliding. So you can imagine a water wave. So you're at the beach, there's a wave coming at you, um, but you're in a motorboat, right? So when this wave is coming at you and you're moving in that motorboat, you're creating a wave as well. And so when these two waves meet, one wave can have a high point and another wave can have a high point and this resulting wave can result in an even higher point. But you can also have one wave at a high point and another wave at a low point. And when they meet together, they just essentially cancel each other out and are flat. So um, this is essentially what we try to do when we're trying to detect um, gravitational waves. So now you can imagine these lasers as waves. And instead of you being on a motorboat, these lasers are now shooting light waves at each other, um, which, which travel close to four kilometers um, in distance and then meet the other light wave. Now, if you move either one of the two lasers, um, once again, with our analogy, you're changing these, these laser light waves meeting at high points or low points. So what you see is gonna be different. Now, this is exactly what gravitational waves do to an object. They squish or stretch the object. They move um, the object in one direction. So if a gravitational wave was to pass by this laser interferometer, um, it would move one of the lasers. And what you would see on the other side is either a brighter wave, brighter light wave, or a dimmer light wave. And depending on what you see, you can say that um, a gravitational wave has passed by. Now, however, I've made it sound a lot easier than it actually is. So maybe we should for a little while, get into the complexity of it, Connor. What do you say? Sure. So um, the the gravitational wave comes in and sort of squishes or stretches one yeah. of the four kilometer branches of this LIGO experiment. Yeah. How how much does it actually change it? Could I could I maybe see what's going on as this stretchy wave passes by <laughs> me? No, unfortunately, you will not feel it. In particular, you can think about where you were in September 2020. And did you feel anything when this massive uh, black hole collision happened? No, you didn't. So this effect is very, very small. It's, sm it's smaller than a proton. Um, it's smaller than sort of one of the basic particles that makes up an element. So it's that small level that we're looking at. And that's why. Um, we're using interferometry. So interferometry in its nature is, is a very sensitive technique. Now, both in our undergrads, I think Connor, you did too. While in being in physics labs, you would have built an interferometer. Um, and these are such sensitive things that if someone walks into a room where this interferometer is, it can move the lasers and change the resulting wave pattern that you see on the other side. So because these things are so sensitive, um, something which is gravitational waves, which actually create a very, very, very tiny effect, 
but these laser interferometers are so sensitive that they can detect such small effects. All right. So now, now that we know a little bit about how this interferometer works and that it detects such a such a tiny signal, surely yeah. there are people walking near this <laughs> exactly. device. Well, so what do, what do they do to sort of cancel out all the other sources of vibrations, uh, even like cars driving by? Yeah. Um, what what do they do so there? Anything can disturb this uh, interferometer, and that's why. Um, and so, what's to prevent, as you Connor, as you Connor said, a car driving by or a bird chirping um, to to cause changes to this laser interferometer? Um, it can, it's true. And that's why, as I pointed out earlier, LIGO is based in two different places, Hanford, Connecticut and Washington State. Oh no, Hanford and Louisiana. Um, it doesn't matter where they are, but they're two separate locations. And so now the cool thing is the way they confirm gravitational waves is if both these locations observe the same pattern at a slight time delay, basically the time delay that it would take a particle of light to travel from one location to the other at the speed of light. And so if both these places see an effect or see a chirp, um, that's when we confirm a gravitational wave. And now there's a third one in Italy. Um, it's, it's a much, it's a smaller one. Um, so it's, it's a lot less sensitive, but it is still there. It's called Virgo. And so now when all three of them see it, you have seen a gravitational wave. So that's how they see gravitational. That's how they confirm gravitational waves and not truck drivers or birds flying. And if, if Virgo sees it, it's also clearly a really big one too. Exactly. Yes. If Virgo sees it, it's, it's a giant one like this one that happened. Yeah. So um, is there anything that they do to sort of stabilize these lasers or do they use entirely um, the correlation between signals at multiple locations. Yeah, they do stabilize these lasers. They, of course, stabilize these lasers. These lasers are not sitting on the ground. But as I said, these are so sensitive that even the movement of the Earth can throw away um, these lasers. So these lasers are essentially hanging from a pendulum um, so, so as to not feel the movement of the Earth as well. So yeah, that's one way they... So, so yeah, it seems like they have a whole bunch of different layers of yeah stabilization uh, and cancellation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a, it's a very deep thing to get into, and that's why I said um, it, it will be it could be essentially a podcast of its own. But as a brief thing, this is what LIGO is. It's a laser interferometer that essentially looks at two light waves meeting, and when a gravitational wave passes by the meeting point of these light wave changes and the resulting the result is what you look at. And so that's how LIGO detects gravitational, LIGO and Virgo in this case, detect gravitational waves. All right, so so now, now we've sort of got an understanding of what LIGO is, what gravitational waves are. I think this is a good time for another break. So we'll be back in just a few seconds. Hello again. Did you catch the answers to the questions? Let's see how you did. For the first question, name the three types of black holes, the answer is stellar black holes, 
intermediate black holes, and supermassive black holes. The second question, how long ago did the merger happen, was an incredible 7 billion years ago. And the third question was, what does the LIGO acronym stand for? The answer is Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. How did you do? Feel free to tell us your score. You can find the Queen's Observatory on Facebook or Twitter. We will have links in the episode description. You may also want to check out our YouTube page, which has many past events for you to watch. Finally, I would like to tell you about some of the other groups that can teach you about the universe. The McDonald Institute, the Royal Astronomical Society, and Astronomy on Tap organizations are all excellent places to virtually check out. We will have links in the episode description for them as well. Okay, let's get back to it. There's plenty more exciting science to learn. And welcome back. So, now we've learned about this exciting discovery of a 142 solar mass black hole. We've learned about what gravitational waves are, what black holes are, what LIGO is. So let's talk a little bit about what's so special about this one, this intermediate mass black hole. We mentioned before that it is special, but even the progenitors, the two black holes that collided, I understand are special as well. So yeah. maybe Nick, you can tell me a little more about the, all the special circumstances that came together for this particular observation. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, this is the first ever intermediate mass black hole that we have seen, but also the progenitors, so the, the two black holes that collided to form this 142 solar mass black hole are also kind of special. Um, so yeah, let's go back to the basics that I was talking about earlier in the podcast that you have a massive star where you have gravity fighting against heat and that's what keeps the star going. And as soon as you form heat, uh, iron in the core of the star, they, there can be no more heat. And so the star collapses on itself, goes supernova and forms a black hole. Now, as I said, you can have stars about the size, about the mass of 100 to 120 times the mass of our own sun. And these can do this particular way to form a black hole. That is form iron at the core, stop the heat from fighting against gravity and collapse on it on itself. Now these 120 times the mass of the sun stars will form black holes of close to about 65. The maximum it can form is about a 65 solar mass black hole, which is like right on the edge of one of the black holes that we're talking about, right? 66 solar mass black hole was one of the black holes that was involved in this collision. So, so the maximum you can come get is a 65 solar mass black hole in these usual massive stars, but you can have even bigger stars. Um, you can have stars that are 200 times the mass of our own sun. Now these stars are really special because these stars, they don't necessarily form iron at their core and stop the fight against um, heat versus gravity. They do it in a different way. Um, what happens is because these stars are so massive at the core, at the density, the amount of particles are just so high that light, heat itself starts to change its own nature. So light, a photon, changes itself because of the conditions, the high density and the temperature 
into an electron and an anti-electron. Um, and that's how you lose heat. You lose heat by changing light itself. But because you're losing heat, gravity wins again, and you form a black hole. But this way can only happen in stars that are about 200 times the mass of our own sun. And it can only form black holes bigger than 120 solar masses. So now you notice a gap. We cannot, in our current theories, form black holes that are between 65 solar masses and 120 solar masses. But the result, the two progenitors or the two black holes that we are talking about over here fall in between this window. And that's why this discovery is so interesting because not only the resulting black hole, which is 142 solar masses, it's an intermediate mass, hole, mass black hole, which is the first of its kind. But the progenitors, the two black holes that combine to make this behemoth of a black hole, were also not expected. You don't necessarily, you can't form them in our current theories. So this is an interesting topic that why. So a lot of research will go into this. Um, maybe an anticlimactic way of saying this is maybe these 66 and 85 solar mass black holes actually came for black, from black hole collisions themselves. But if they do, did not, and we have no way to check that because that collision has already happened and gone by. But if they did not, then we're looking at new physics that we don't necessarily know. Yeah. So how, how surprising would it be for both of these individual black holes to have been formed by another collision? How, how common should these collisions be? Like how long well, does it take for a collision? Well, you can imagine, as I said, we expect close to a billion stellar black holes in our galaxy. So these, these black hole collisions should be very common. Um, we should be seeing, I think, we should be seeing them fairly often. And I think that's what Gra LIGO um, especially sees. As I said, since the first ever LIGO discovery was in 2015, um, and since then, it's, it's seen a few dozen of these black hole collisions. Now you have to keep making your equipment more and more sensitive to see these, these black hole collisions, but they should be fairly common. So I think one of the biggest leading theories is that these two big black holes also came from black hole collisions themselves. However, um, because we have no way to actually confirm that and adding to that, we don't completely understand sort of an evolution of a star this is making into some quite nice mysteries as well. Yeah. So how sure are these scientists about um, the, the size of black holes that can be produced from collapsing stars? Are these limits of below 65 or above 120 sort yeah. of set in stone? Or is there, is there some controversy here? Um, so not controversy, but they're also not set in stone. So we're somewhere in the middle of it. Um, as I pointed out, we don't completely understand sort of what is called supernova physics or sort of end of a star lifetime physics. So while this is sort of what our current understanding says, I think this is fairly specific to the environment that you live in. So the kind of environment you are in can change the lifetime of a star or the evolution of a star in itself. So I'm going to say we're still learning a lot about these stellar physics, but this definitely is a new new mystery and maybe something new um, that we can continue to, 
talk about over the coming years. All right. So maybe maybe a topic for a future podcast is exactly how, yeah. how supernovas work and what sorts of things they can produce. Yeah, I mean, that is that... going to be a lot of I don't know, because we don't know. <laughs> Still, there's some there's some interesting work done. I've seen I've seen videos of simulations of supernovae yeah. that yeah. take place over the course of a fraction of a second, and you get to watch a star completely yeah. obliterate itself. Yeah, it's, maybe it's, we'll maybe we'll link one in the description. Uh -huh. Yeah. So so as you said, um, this black hole merger was kind of special. It was a bang instead of yeah. a chirp. Yeah. And so I, I think some people have been speculating about what other things this gravitational wave could have been. Right. You want right. to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, so this is a very small possibility. And maybe I should say this, emphasize this and lead into this conversation. It's a very small possibility. But generally, what we have seen from LIGO slash Virgo is chirps when black holes collide. But this, this thing was maybe more of a bang instead of a small chirp. And so that makes scientists wonder what else could cause gravitational waves. And maybe is it something that we're seeing those different phenomena over here? And so one of the things that we think might could cause a bang like this that can be seen by uh, LIGO is supernovae. So uh, just a classic massive star going into uh, towards the end of its lifetime and going supernova. And remember, it's a very energetic event so that itself can create um, significant amount of gravitational waves. Not significant, but a good amount of gravitational waves that can be seen. So, so maybe. So if, sorry, if that's the case, then uh, how would how would the people at LIGO have been tricked into thinking that um, this was too like a sixty-six and an eighty-five right. solar mass black hole? How would right. they have been tricked into thinking that it's it's that instead of a supernova. Right, and I think the biggest, the answer to that is we've never seen gravitational waves from supernovae. And I, the way um, LIGO scientists are thinking about it um, in the way I, I saw them in the press conference is, is that one, because they've never seen gravitational waves from a supernova and two, they don't necessarily are, sh they're not necessarily sure that um, uh, their, their instrument can really detect gravitational waves from supernova. However, the, the nature of this gravitational wave sort of gave them a small possibility. But once again, we apply sort of what is called the Occam's razor over here, where the simplest uh, answer is the better answer. And that's why they, seems to, they seem to think um, this is a black hole collision. Fair enough. So if, if you assume it's a black hole collision, then they're on the right track with their 66 right. and 85. But yeah. if you if you try and sort of explore some of the other options, then you need a yeah. different model entirely to understand exactly. this gravitational wave. Yeah, but yeah, but this gravitational wave was special in the way we heard it. And that's why sort of all of these speculations came into um, existence. So long as we're speculating, which is always a fun topic in science, <laughs> well, LIGO has sort of opened up a new world a new way for us to look at the universe. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you sort of tell me what sorts of other things are on the horizon for gravitational waves? Yeah, that's right. It, it is definitely a new avenue of astrophysics, a new avenue for exploration. So in this podcast, we talked about 
stellar black holes or baby black holes. And then the discovery was the first ever intermediate mass black holes. We didn't really go into um, supermassive black holes that much. So in order to see supermassive black holes, you, you need to have equipment that's even more sensitive. Um, supermassive black holes are so big that it's, as you pointed out earlier, it's very hard to move them. So when they merge, um, the gravitational waves might not be as strong. Therefore, we need even more sensitive equipment. So for example, LIGO is only four kilometers. Um, we need something much longer than four kilometers to be able to see supermassive black hole merges. So that's one thing um, with respect to gravitational waves that should be very exciting, being able to see supermassive black holes merge. So um, our, how, how long of an arm do we need in order to see these supermassive black holes colliding with uh, each other? Yeah, let's, let's wait on the length of the arm for a minute because we can, we, can, we can just talk about that when I talk about some future experiments that are coming in place. Um, let's actually go through some of the cool speculative physics that we can actually see um, through the gravitational wave experiments that are coming in the future. So yeah, supermassive black hole mergers. Um, another thing is trying to understand the expansion of the universe, which is something that we've only been doing through light, but with gravitational waves, we can actually measure distances to objects. And if we can measure distances to objects, we can figure out how fast the universe itself is expanding. And then I think the biggest questions of them all, the Big Bang, the start of the universe, um, also apparently created gravitational waves. Um, and those are called primordial gravitational waves. So if we detect those, we can look into sort of the infancy of our own universe and try to understand why does our universe look the way it does. And so now going back to your question, how long do, a, do an arm do we need? Well, it turns out quite a long arm, um, a long enough arm that we cannot build another so-called laser interferometer on Earth. We need to go to space now. So <clears throat> actually for in the year 2030, there's, there are plans to actually put an instrument up in space. It's gonna be called LISA, which stands for Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. Um, and it's gonna be able to see and detect all of the things that I just very recently just talked about. Um, so LISA, Brace yourself, Connor. Will have an arm of two point five million kilometers. That's a that's a fair bit longer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So from four kilometers, which is what we have with LIGO, three kilometers with Virgo, we're going to move on to two and a half million kilometers. So this is going to be put in space. So instead of actually having two lasers, which is the case for LIGO and Virgo, we're going to have three lasers. Sorry about that. We're going to have three detectors moving in a triangle, each with a, the length of the triangle being two and a half million kilometers. And because of that, because of such a long arm length, we're gonna be able to see these, um, these, these physic physical mysteries that we don't quite understand or we have theories, but haven't been confirmed yet. So that's gonna be the job of LISA. It's gonna happen in the year 2030. It's a European and a NASA led project. So one thing that all astronomers are waiting very eagerly for, for sure. That's very exciting. Um, yeah. So is LISA the 
is Lisa the only gravitational wave experiment being planned for the future, or has anyone got any crazier ideas <laughs> going forward? So there's 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 another. So yeah, Lisa is one of the forefronts, but there's another idea that is out there, which seems to be quite interesting, and that uses that is the technique called pulsar timing arrays. Um, so last podcast, Connor, you interviewed Akansha, who studied neutron stars. And neutron stars have these beams of particles that once these beams face us, um, we get a signal in radio wavelengths and that's called a pulsar. And these um, sort of the spinning of the neutron star actually causes that. And the spinning is very precise. So you can time. Yeah, they're, they're um, kind of like a lighthouse, right? Exactly. Yeah, a lighthouse for space. And so we can actually use, we can just actually use a lot of pulsars in space and just time whenever we see a signal from a pulsar. And now remember that gravitational waves passing by will shrink or expand space. Um, and so that can actually mean that some pulsars can get closer to us or some pulsars can get very small by a very small amount further away from us, which would mean that the timing would be a little bit off. And if the timing is a little bit off, you can essentially use those uh, timing uh, equipment to study gravitational waves. And that can solve one of the longstanding problems of supermassive black holes merging. As I said earlier, you need very, very sensitive equipment to actually see supermassive black holes merging. And that's because they're so massive, it's very hard to move them. And so there's a longstanding problem in astronomy, which is called the final parsec problem, where supermassive black holes actually, when they're about to merge, uh, they don't necessarily merge, but they just keep orbiting each other because they find so-called stable positions to just go around each other. But clearly they need to merge because we only see one supermassive black hole almost in every galaxy. So what these pulsar timing arrays will be able to give us is sort of the gravitational wave signature for this final parsec problem. I mean, so Lisa, LIGO will be, are able to see gravitational waves at the moment of collision, so the chirp, but these pulsar timing arrays can actually, are sensitive enough to actually detect um, gravitational waves from well before the collisions actually happen. So that is something very cool to look forward to. Those are some pretty wild ideas going forward. I'm looking at <laughs> Really looking forward to these experiments. Don't be surprised if in the future we actually do another podcast about gravitational waves and something new thing, new stuff that has happened. All right. Well, I look, I look forward to that. And <laughs> for now, I think that's all from us. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter as the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.